When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In today's episode of Health Theory with Carl Lenore, we discuss why you shouldn't listen to health experts, how to actually do research for yourself, the importance of looking at evolution, and why sun, sex, and sleep are the most important things for your health. Hey everybody, welcome to Health Theory. Today's guest is Carl Lenore. He's a radio host and podcaster with millions of listeners and a burning desire to educate the world on the realities of today's food system. He's a self-proclaimed physical culturalist and crusader and he's hell-bent to use his own innate curiosities to uncover what's really going on at the cutting edge of the health sciences. And Carl, the part of your story that I love the most is that this all started for you with a bit of pain and probably a significant dollop of fear. Uh, Walk us through what sent you down this path. Uh, When I was 39 years old, I was diagnosed with a kind of unusual arrhythmia where the left side and right side of my heart was beating out of sync. And I was 330 pounds and I was the average American. And I was eating and eating and eating, and I wasn't active. Uh, I was running a business that didn't require me to be active. I sat at a desk all day long, and I just turned into this sick human being. Uh, my ex-wife bought me the book by Deepak Chopra, Ageless Beauty, Timeless Mind. And I couldn't tell you anything I read in that book except one passage, and that was that every cell in your body turns over anywhere from six weeks to six months. Mm. You know, bone slower, tissue faster. And I thought, if this is true, how do I best put myself in a position for those new cells to be healthy as opposed to the sick ones that are in my heart? And I started to read PubMed. I found PubMed like a lot of people. I thought, you know what? I'm going to read the research. And what I discovered was that uh, weightlifters had the greatest remodeling effect of cardiac tissue. And I thought, remodeling, that's what I need. You know, you remodel a house when it's all beat up, so I'm gonna remodel my heart. And so I started weightlifting, uh, specifically, and I changed my diet. And as I lost weight, I got better. I ended up not needing the medications. Uh, I was on them for a short time, and then my doctor agreed to wean them off of, uh, me off of them. And I discovered that, wow, like, y- you don't have to get sick. And if you get sick, you can actually do things to fix yourself. This was a novel idea. I thought, you know, only doctors could do that for you in hospitals and stuff like that. Have you read the book, Change or Die? No, I haven't. So the punchline of the book, Change or Die, is that when given the choice, hey, you have a heart condition, and if you don't change, you're going to die, it's some absurd percent, I don't remember the exact percent, but call it 
north of 80, it might be north of 90. Um, even if all they have to do is take one pill a day, they fail to comply. And I just thought, how is that possible? So what is it about you that makes you so capable to hear that message? Because not only did you say, I'm going to change and then put in the work and lose 100 pounds, you had the more fascinating journey of immediately having distrust for the medical establishment and even having to do that work on your own. So you, you first had to figure out what to do right. and then actually do it. So what is it in your upbringing or just the way that you think that made that possible for you? And I, I got to tell you, I think part of it is my generation. I think we baby boomers, we were part of the, the, the dropout you know, generation. We didn't trust the man. We didn't trust organized uh, groups that seemed to try to apply authoritative opinions over on us. My father died of polypharmacy. He died from taking all the medications. They destroyed his liver and his kidneys and he died. Me, when my doctor told me something, I thought, hmm, I don't know if that's true. I think I want to go find out. So just that nuance that I didn't take what the authority said to me as gospel and followed it is, is, is probably a hallmark of baby boomers. I also felt like I was very depressed. I, didn't want to, I wasn't ready to die. I wasn't willing to accept, go quietly, oh, this is part of aging. I was like, no, it's not part of my aging. This isn't how I end my story. Mm. And so I think that those two things combined gave me the courage to seek other information. But then I had to sort through the information and pick what was good and what wasn't. How sort of early in the internet was this? Yeah, internet was really brand new. I mean, really, really brand new. So like 98. Wow. Yeah. So then you have a, an unnatural ability to do research. Walk us through what, what's your process? Like how did you find PubMed? Now it'd be easy, you go and you just drop it in a search box, but back then it wasn't that simple. Back then, they weren't really like websites, right? Mm. There was a message board for doctors and I lied and said I was a doctor. And then once I got in there, that's when I was able to start digging around and asking people for research and stuff and getting it sent to me, actually mm. emailed to me. And that started it. And then slowly but surely, the internet became a lot easier to manage and, uh, and doing research on your own became more possible because there were more people actually putting their databases out there. So whenever you encounter a new idea, I'll go start with YouTube videos and I'll just drop in the search term, see what comes up. I try to learn the lexicon, then I find the experts and then I read in swarms, meaning I read a bunch of books from different people on one topic. What does your process look like? When it's something brand new, you've just like heard something, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so the way I do things now, after 13 years of interviewing some of the most brilliant people in, in, in individual spaces, is I apply critical thinking first. And the first element of my critical thinking is evolution. So I can tell you, look, you call this show health theory. That's brilliant. And here's why. Because everything going forward is a guess. Right. But everything behind us isn't a guess. So we don't pay attention to 1.8 million years of the selection pressure that molded us into what we are today, but we put all of our faith in science du jour. So the first thing I do is I look at things and say, why would evolution have endowed us with that? We have one job and that is to keep 
proliferation of the species. That's it. We talk about reproductive fitness. Reproductive fitness holds you together and well until you pass the reproductive ages. Then you fall apart mm. because you should have done your job by then. Uh, so I apply uh, evolutionary edicts to everything that I look at and I go, does this hold true? Would evolution have endowed us with this? And if I can't answer that question without saying, yeah, I can see why this would be a value to us, then I immediately discount. Like, like for instance, right now we have a keto craze going on. Mm. Um, from an evolutionary perspective, uh, ketosis would have served us only during starvation. So when people tell me, oh, the way to eat all the time is keto, I go, absolutely not. 1.8 million years have proven that, but if you don't believe it, look at, look at the research being done right now on hunter-gatherer civilizations that are still intact. Now, when I talk about ketosis, I'm not talking about half a millimole, because most of us wake up in the morning with half a millimole of ketones. Mm. I'm talking about this absurdity of shooting for two and three millimoles of ketosis, unless you're battling brain cancer, right? This is actually not a good idea because it actually shifts mRNA and DNA to think that you're in a starvation state. If you're eating 90% fat all the time, your body thinks, wow, this person sucks at finding food. So we need to put this body in like in, in, in DEFCON 4 mode because this idiot's gonna die. So let's shut down the thyroid, let's do all these things to preserve until we can get out of this jam we're in. And, and proof of that is if, if, if two people are into keto, husband and wife, and they're both into, they're posting their keto pictures, oh, I'm 1.2 millimoles, and my wife is 2.6, and, and she gets pregnant, that baby will be imprinted with obesity genes because that baby is being formed under the guise from an evolutionary perspective mm -hmm. that mom and dad suck at finding food. So we have to make this baby so efficient that it turns everything into fat. And this has been proven. When I look at these things, I look at them from evolution. I say, okay, where would ketosis have really come? Okay, famine. It would have got us through the famine. Would it, because we're metabolically flexible, I look at everything that way first. Why is this important? Why would we be endowed with it? Where did it come from? And then I do my research from there. That's really, really interesting. I think that's super smart. All right, so you start with that evolutionary lens. I think that's insanely powerful as a backstop of does this make sense? Then what do you do? The next thing is that you cannot have an agenda when you're reading research. Many people, whether they realize it or not, are coming to find something to support their opinion. Mm. And you can't have an agenda. You have to accept the good with the bad. Because if you're truly in search of the truth, an agenda could skew the way you look at things. So I would say the most powerful thing that you could have when you're doing research of this type is not to come with an agenda. Or if you do have an agenda, acknowledge it so that you can then discount it when you feel giddy about finding this study. Oh, mm. like, let me see if I can find the study that contradicts this. And be open to the fact that you want the truth, you don't want to be right. That's really good. That's really good. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So once you have that, 
and you've got your sort of biasy checks in place, you've got your critical thinking, how do you know what experts to listen to and which to ignore? And I ask that in the context of in this arena, even on this show, you'll get people that are like, keto's amazing, live there forever. And then keto is like only for famine, cycle in, cycle out. So people get lost. So what I love is that you're somebody who forms their own opinion and tells people to do the same. Now I'm saying, how do people, like, how do they know whether to listen to you or somebody else or somebody else? I say don't listen to me or somebody else. I say that you have to make the decision for you. We're all very unique um, because of our individual evolutionary journeys. And so where somebody can eat a food that they thrive on, maybe I can't. Information is overwhelming today. And people don't know what to do. And they actually become numb after a while. Like, I can't eat this, I can't eat that. Like, what the hell can I do? Mm. I say to people, look, go back a few hundred years. Where did your people come from? What foods were indigenously available and, and during what seasons? And start there to build your foundation of what you do well with. Um, but I think that the reality is that you can't just take anything anyone says and hitch your wagon to it. You've got you've to let it ruminate in your head and you've got to think about it and you've got to keep challenging it because there's so much information out there today and so much of it is wrong. It's scary. I mean, I fall prey to this when I'm reading studies and I think to myself, this just doesn't sound right. Like, I, I need to dig deeper. And then I find out, oh, I can see why they have this opinion. People are protecting their own little fiefdoms mm. uh, by, you know, sticking to their, to their guns when they really should change their opinion and move forward. You talked about individuality, which is something that I'm really obsessed with. So any longtime listener of this show knows, so Lisa had, has, um, digestive issues. It used to be catastrophic. I think she's getting it way in line now. But we've really had to ask not work, what works for other people, but what works for Lisa. It has to be an N equals one experiment. What works for somebody doesn't necessarily work for you. And the only way to know if it's working for you is are you getting better? Mm. The problem is it takes a long time to get better because by the time you've got symptoms, you could be two years down that rabbit hole. And, and this is where the pharmaceutical industry thrives because we want, we want to feel better now. Right. We want it now. Like, give me something, doc, I don't like the way I feel. Well, you may need to be patient and do one thing for two or three weeks and see if that's working. And quite frankly, if it gets worse, feel good because you're on the right path. Mm -hmm. You're just going the wrong way. That's, I like that. So, so if you get something that makes you sick or go, oh man, like, if I eat a lot of fiber, I wake up in the morning with brain fog. Really? Yeah, because, because fiber is supposed to be fermented in the large intestine, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. If the fiber is, is being fermented in the small intestine, then you're getting bloated after a meal because it's fermenting here and not down there. You're not farting it out, you're burping it back up. Right. That's the first sign that you've got microbes and, and stuff inside your small intestine. When you start to, to see these foods making you feel that way, it's time for you to say, stop. My mother used to say, if you're lost, don't run. Because you could be running in the wrong direction. That's good advice. So when you feel like, Gee, I don't understand, but why, when I eat pizza, I just get so bloated. Okay, first thing, 
Don't eat pizza. Now, what else makes you bloated? Get those things out of your diet. If you are one of these people who has a distended stomach, you belch all the time, you wake up, you haven't eaten in, in 12 hours, you're burping in the morning. Mm. You have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. In fact, I predict that 76% of the population has SIBO today. That is very specific. Yeah. Why 76? Because 76% of the people in the United States claim that they have a gut problem. They're bloated, they're gassy, certain foods don't uh, agree with them. Most of the time it's starches and sugars and, and uh, digestion-resistant starches that don't agree with them because they're being metabolized in the small intestine where they shouldn't be. Now I want to go back. Really thinking about that number, that's terrifying that 76% report having gut issues. That's pure insanity. So... Okay, the solution there is... You may need right. a very specific antibiotic, but it's, it's, always, it's always gonna be diet. Mm. It's always gonna be diet. All right, well then, because I'm so terrified of antibiotics, I, I will tell you, because I think that's almost certainly what caused Lisa's problem. Um, so walk me through non-antibiotic things to try. From a supplement standpoint, grape, fruit, seed, extract. Um, there's a... a free fatty acid, and I'm gonna get the name wrong, but it starts with a U, it's like, it's like eucyclic acid. They, they uh, permeate the uh, microbes uh, cell wall and make it burst. The other thing is like coconut oil. I know everybody's like, oh, coconut, I'm not saying pound it down, but on an empty stomach first thing in the morning, a, a teaspoonful of coconut oil because coconut oil helps to destroy those microbes. The reason the small intestine becomes inhabited in the first place is because the acid level in your stomach is becoming too neutral. You need to drop the pH and make it more acidic because if the acidity in the small intestine was appropriate, they would never live there. They, have, they would only live when they got to the large intestine. Mm. So clearly you have an issue with your small intestine and the acidity level. So by, you know, a lot of people will say, I got better when I started taking apple cider vinegar three times. Yeah, because that apple cider vinegar is washing down into the small intestine and it's killing that bacteria that shouldn't be there in the first place. Interesting. So those kind of things work uh, very well. Diet works really well. Starve them. Starve them. If they, if they want starches, don't eat starches. Now, I'm not saying be keto. Eat vegetables. Be sensible. Eat broccoli. Eat spinach. You know. Uh, don't eat 90% fat and say, oh, it's working. Yeah, it'll work, but you have a, you're gonna have other problems. But, but just stay away from the, the pasta and the pizza and the bread and the white potatoes and really even yams. Just stay away from starches for a while, a good six months, and you'll find out your stomach is less distended. If you look at the number of people today that stomachs pop out underneath their chest and tuck back in at their pelvis, you, you think to yourself, what is it? It's gas. It's the small intestine has become a fermenting factory mm. and you're loaded with gas. And when you have gas constantly, it's pushing up against the esophageal sphincter and finally it breaches it and it blows some stomach acid up, some stomach acid up, some stomach acid up. And these people inevitably are always belching and burping and they're always bloated and they got distended stomachs. If we can get that under control, they get better. And let's remember something. This is the immune system. This, what do you mean this? The gut. Right. It is the immune system. I mean, we now know that, that uh, uh, Parkinson's disease starts in the stomach. We now know that, that uh, intraocular pressure, uh, glaucoma, starts in the stomach. It's an autoimmune disease. 
Everybody's got autoimmune diseases today. We can all agree that uh, inflammation is the root of all disease today, right? We've been saying that for what, a decade now? Mm. Well, inflammation is what the immune system does. That's how it mounts an attack on something. That's how if there's a foreign something in your body, it sends out macrophages, it sends out inflammatory responses to go and, and to, to destroy that and kill it. If you work out, that's your immune system making you recover. You have inflammation and it goes and it resolves the inflammation. Mm. That all, that's all coming from here. When, when, when your gut is bad, your body is bad and you, you are more prone to developing a widespread group of diseases. So what do you know about fecal transplant? My mother had one when she was in the Really? Room. Oh my God, tell me more. I, I asked for it. So my mother got a real bad case of C. diff. Whoa. And she had really bad diarrhea. And she was like, they were saying like, we can't keep her hydrated. She's going to die. And uh, my niece, Kelly, because it's best if it's from a family member, sure. went and donated a little poop. And they, they inserted it in my mom and she lived. She got better. That's insane. So now I need to know how much she got better. Like, what are we talking here? Like well, slight she was, improvement she was in her eighties to... and she was like on death's door and she right. didn't die for another four or five years. I think it was. Wow. That's uh, that's really incredible. What I find really distressing about gut issues is how hard it is to rebalance. Yes. And so I was, you know, to your point about just sort of process through at a critical thinking level, I was thinking through, okay, why would that be? So it's really hard to just take a probiotic and hope that it, you know, rebalances. And I'm guessing this is how somebody tried a fecal transplant the first time, obliterate through antibiotics so that you're starting from scratch yes. and then repopulate. Because I was, I literally had the thought, could I be re- like vaginally swabbed like if you're so a child is born mm. with no immune system it gets it through the vaginal birth and that they swallow it and it gets crazy and then i thought but that you can't do that as an adult so why and then that led me down that have you ever no and I, i've had exactly that same train of thought you know I, i've asked scientists that i've interviewed like i kill my lawn and reseed why can't i do that with my gut and they all agree you can, but the problem is that the vast number of microbes you picked up in your life can't be replaced by something in a capsule. Our gut is kind of like the universe. Like we know where the planets are, right? But we really don't know everything about the universe there right. is to know. Every day they're discovering new microbes that inhabit our gut and the things that they impart upon us. Right. So you'd have, You'd, you'd have a, a very monolithic microbiome if you had to use what we have available to us. But you're absolutely right. Uh, the reality is that uh, you, if, you, if you kind of take a scorched earth approach and kill everything, you could recede then. But you'd have to have everything right in the receding, and we just don't know enough about it yet. This also sounds like a pretty dangerous process to do the obliteration first. Yeah. Yeah. All right, on a totally different topic, talk to me about your routines. I know that you use a lot of supplementation. You're very vocal about the things that you've used or tried. Um, what are some things that are just an absolute standard part of your day? I have the three S's, the most important evolutionary edicts that if you practice these regularly, you will live a long, healthy life. And they're the three S's, sun, sex, and sleep, okay? The sun will make you want to have more sex. The sun will improve the quality of your sleep if you're out there getting sun all day long. If you do those three things regularly, you will live longer. You won't get prostate cancer. 
uh, there's evidence that women who have sex more uh, often and their partner actually uh, ejaculates in them don't get fibroids, they don't get uterine cancer. I mean, guys who have more, uh, uh, more um, orgasms are protected against prostate cancer. I, when, you, when you do the things that evolution put you here to do, which is be in the sun, have sex, and sleep well, you, you, that, that's 90% of the job right there. Mm. Uh, I use melanotan 2, 25 micrograms a day, because uh, the, what we attribute the sun to doing for us is vitamin D. Oh, vitamin D, vitamin D. So they get that because of epidemiological studies show that people who live closer to the equator don't get heart disease, they don't get this, they don't get cancer, they don't get it. So we just say, oh, it's, it's the sun, it's vitamin D. But a lot of research has let us down. It's like vitamin D doesn't play out when you supplement it. It doesn't seem to confer those same benefits. Well, the most overlooked thing about your skin is something called the melanocortin system. It produces five different hormones and every cell in your body has a melanocortin receptor on it. And the melanocortin system is responsible for libido. That's a big one because anything that Im improves libido, you're getting healthier. Right. Because that's, that's evolutionary edict number one, have lots of sex and lots of children before you die. And the, really the rest of it is diet and sleep. It really is. Uh, I do everything I can to protect and improve the quality of my sleep. And uh, I'm, I'm almost militant about my diet, but I, I come to the conclusion that in order to be healthy today, you almost have to be militant about it. Mm. Because there's so many people pulling on you, oh, come on, come on, you can have pizza. Come on, you can go out and have a few drinks, come on. And I almost think that they want me to do it, not because they think I'm missing out, but then it kind of, makes them feel less guilty for what they're yeah, doing. Yeah, of course. You know, so. All right, let's go deep into those. The three S's, that's really strong. So how much sun are you getting? Um, I lay in the sun as often as possible, sometimes just for 20 or 30 minutes. When we, we talk about sun, everybody thinks it's, like, it's gotta be like Tahiti weather. No, the sun coming through the clouds confers a benefit. And I always get out there and take my shirt off. I just make sure that I get that light on me. Uh, and then, of course, I use Milano 10 2 to fill in for when the sun isn't there for months at a time. Okay, so um, how do you protect your sleep? Well, first of all, in order to manage it, you have to measure it. Get some sort of an app. I use a product called Sleep Cycle, and if you use it with like a Fitbit, you can actually see how low your heart rate, I mean, my, low, my heart rate goes down to 40 beats per minute in, in deep sleep. Wow. I mean, that, when I, the first time I saw that, I was shocked. And so once you get one of these sleep apps and you see how you're sleeping, then you can start to do things uh, that improve sleep. I'm a big believer in any type of blue blocking glasses late at night, usually about 7 p.m. Don't eat three hours before bedtime. That's a big one. Dr. Dale Bredesen, who just did some groundbreaking studies here at UCLA and which led to the book, The End of Alzheimer's, uh, he is uh, responsible for telling people who have Alzheimer's disease to have three hour window between their last meal and when they go to bed. And that helped a lot resolving oh, brain inflammation. Yeah, yes. Do you know the mechanism behind that? Yeah, autophagy. Explain for people what autophagy is. Okay, well, so, so let, me, let me back up. If your body is playing host to digesting food, mm -hmm. the factory is open. You're not sleeping well. 
it's busy. It's doing things, right? If the food is past the initial digestive phases and moving into the small intestine and soon the large intestine, which is what happens within that three-hour window, right. your body is now on coast. It's not working as hard. You could get into deep sleep. In fact, if I have a meal late at night for whatever reason, you know, I'm being sociable and I go to sleep an hour and a half, I don't get into the deep sleep that I normally do. And you see that because you're tracking it. In fact, my heart rate never goes down into the 40s. It stays up high all night That's long. That's really interesting. Well, this leads to heart attacks. You know, older people who are not in good shape, they have big meals, they go to bed, they die in their sleep because your heart needs that rest at night. It needs mm. to like slow the hell down. And if you have food, the factory is open. The heart is moving stuff around. It can't slow down. Um, so the other thing is that uh, the cellular waste management system is autophagy. And this is when organelles go around the cells and clean up metabolic debris and turn them into things that can be you know, carried out of the body. Mm. Autophagy shuts off when your body's digesting food. Autophagy is ramped up when you're fasting. Like they did a study that showed that during fasting, the autophagy in the brain starts to clean up the plaque that accumulates in some of these neurological disorders, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Um, so that doesn't happen if you're eating before bed. Uh, another secret that I found is as you get older, blood sugar management seems to become more of a challenge for the body. If you're one of these people who wakes up at 2 a.m. in the morning all the time, 99% of the time, if you had a glucometer and checked your blood, you'd find out that you just went into a hypoglycemic state. Mm. The blood dropped really low. The brain goes, oh, shit, I, I need sugar. And so what the brain does is it wakes up the, ad the adrenals and says, hey, get me, you know, and you have to wake up for the adrenals to do their job. So if you're one of these people who wakes up at two or three a.m. in the morning all the time, three to five grams of an amino acid called glycine, G-L-Y-C-I-N-E. If you take glycine right before bed, you'll sleep all night. Why? Because glycine is a glucogenic amino acid. It can convert to glucose through gluconeogenesis, but it doesn't do it quickly. It won't kick you out of ketosis if you're one of these people who wants to stay in ketosis. It'll only do it on demand and it'll only raise blood sugar enough to keep you sleeping. It won't send you into a spike like you just had a meal. If you take three to five uh, grams of glycine before bed, you'll sleep all night. You'll go, oh my God, I can't believe it. That was the answer. It was because you're going into hypoglycemia at night. That's interesting. And obviously if you snore, I don't care if you have obstructive sleep apnea or not, snoring is not normal, okay? If you're breathing through your mouth at night, that's not good. Why, Tape your Why mouth isn't that shut. good? There are, there, is a, there are nerve bundles in your nostrils that go right to the brain to give it immediate information like, oh, we're not getting enough air, what, what to do. Hmm. If you're breathing through your mouth, you bypass that entirely. The brain really has no real knowledge of how much nitric oxide is coming in or blood, blood, managing uh, oxygen and carbon dioxide. If you're not breathing through your nose, you won't get into deep sleep. So I'm a huge proponent of taping your mouth shut. If you are somebody who your partner says you snore, but it's not bad, uh, and you don't have a deviated septum or something to worry about, like you're gonna smother if you tape your mouth shut, uh, or you are a full-blown snorer, start taping your mouth shut. Just get surgical tape, put a couple strips. You gotta shave, because it won't stick otherwise. Put a couple strips across your mouth and try sleeping. You'll find out that once you get past the fear of sleeping with your mouth taped, mm. you sleep so much deeper. Think about it. Babies, right? Young kids, they fall asleep on picket fences, <laughs> right? 
as we get older, it's like sleep becomes more elusive. It's like, man, I just wish I could get a good night's sleep. I wish I could wake up and feel good in the morning. So sleep is a big, big, big one. Yeah. Uh, I love that. You posted on your Instagram something that stopped me dead in my tracks. I loved it so much. And it was, I just turned 60, the best is in front of me. What do you mean by that? I'm so much wiser now. Like even when I look at the show and the way I approach the show and the things that I've learned, but also I'm a lot more willing. Um, I'm a lot more willing to be vulnerable now. You know, I grew up in an environment where vulnerability was equated to weakness. We used to have a saying, oh, he took kindness for weakness. Mm. You did something nice to somebody and then they were going to try to screw you because they thought that you were easy to screw. And so I grew up in an environment where you, you weren't kind to people and people respected fear. Watching my father pass away, that, that was a game changer for me. I, no, no man recognizes his own mortality until his father passes away. It just doesn't work otherwise. I watched my father in that bed and I saw myself. I thought, holy shit, that's going to be me. I'm not ready for that. And that opened up my ability to be more vulnerable because I felt like, you know what? I just don't want to be that guy anymore. I don't want to be hard. I don't want to be uh, angry. I want to be more forgiving. I want to be more loving. I'm a firm believer that you cannot live until you have addressed your own death. I'm a huge believer of that, right? We're all on this, we're all on this car ride, right? We're starting on the East Coast and we're heading to the West Coast, but we don't want to talk about the fact that we're going to be in California eventually. We're driving and driving. It's like, hey, where are we going? Oh, I don't want to talk about that. That's how we treat death. Like, we're all going to die. Why not make peace with it? And all of a sudden, you look at the things that you must do in your life, and the rest of the stuff is just minutia. And I think that I recognize my own death. I realize I'm going to die. I don't want to die soon. I have longevity in my genes. But I've actually sat and imagined so what am I going to do when I'm on that bed and I know this is it? And I call it snow day. When I die, I want it to be like snow day. When I had young kids and it snowed, nobody expected me to go to work. Nobody expected <laughs> me to take the kids to school. Nobody, it's snow day. We're going to stay home. We're going to eat pizza. We're going to watch television. We're going to have fun because nobody expects me to do anything. That's how you should feel about your life when you're ready to die. You shouldn't feel like I need more time. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And the only way that you can figure that shit out is to sit down and think about what's it going to feel like when I'm dying? Like when I, this is it, time is out. I, I, there's nothing else that I can do. What am I going to feel like? And then all of a sudden it crystallizes the really important things that are the, the, in your life and you, you can be more focused on those things. I absolutely love that. That was amazing. Before I ask my last question, tell these guys where they can find you online. Superhumanradio.net. Superhumanradio.net. We have great articles and shows. I, I do four shows a week. It's a lot, so yeah. no problem. All right. What, if people could change one thing, what would you have them change for the biggest impact on their health? You know... That really is a tie. It is diet and it's sleep. It's those two things. That, that's the wheelhouse for optimal health. Mm. 
It really is. I mean, when it comes down to health, the things that either erode health or support it is what you put in your mouth and how well you sleep. And that's really it. You should eat a diet that's appropriate for the human condition. That's, that's not something that's subject to, to deviate from. Now, you can live a long time and eat crap food. Yeah, sure. But your, your, life is, your health span isn't going to match your lifespan. But I would, say, I would say for sure diet and sleep and sex. <laughs> sex is really big. I know it sounds corny, but it's the evolutionary edict. It's the one reason you're on this planet. And the more you do it, the more your body will reward you. The three S's. There you go. Sun, it. sex, and sleep. Works for me. Carl, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me, man. That was a pleasure. Guys, I've known this man for years, and I'm telling you, he is a wealth of information. But the thing that I want you to pay most close attention to is the way that he doesn't just take information at face value. He wants to understand it. And I love, I was not actually expecting the answer he gave me when I was asking about research, but it really tells you who he is. And that is to start with that backstop of just critical thinking, of understanding the process by which you're going to think through this so that you can identify what works and what doesn't, what's real, that you can begin to understand who's an authority you should pay attention to and who's somebody that you should ignore. And taking ownership of your own health and going out and exploring, being inquisitive, having fun with it, I think that is one of the most like amazing things you're gonna take away from his content his radio show is absolutely incredible. He brings on a wide swath of the world to talk about a wide range of topics, all related to all of the things around physical culture. It's an amazing show that has been around longer than just about anybody else, I think 13 years. Yeah. It's absolutely insane. And you can imagine how good you get at something after doing it for 13 years. It's really, really extraordinary. Trust me, if you dive into his world, you will be richly rewarded. Rewarded. All right, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Carl, thank you, man. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.